This time out, rather than look at one location, we're instead going to take a look at an entire county. A county in the northwest of England, which has had its history and landscape characterised by invasions, migration and settlement, as well as battles and skirmishes between the English and the Scottish. A county steeped in myth and legend, with possible ties to King Arthur. And then, there are the ghosts. Tonight, join me for a very special episode as we begin our Ghost Trail of Cumbria. Welcome to episode 29 of How Haunted, a weekly paranormal podcast where each episode we explore the horrible history and terrifying ghost stories of one of the most haunted places on planet Earth. I'm Rob Kirkup, author, paranormal historian and ghost hunter from the northeast of England. Allow me to be your guide as we dare to investigate in depth the often dark and troubled history of each location and of course, the chilling tales of the ghosts that reside within. This week, we head to the northwest of England and ask just how haunted is Cumbria? Listener discretion is advised, as each episode of How Haunted will feature gruesome tales, horrific happenings, bloody murder, and ghosts. So many ghosts. Listen on if you dare. The picturesque county of Cumbria is predominantly rural, and it contains the Lake District National Park, which is a UNESCO World Heritage Site, and is considered one of England's finest areas of natural beauty. A large portion of the southeast of Cumbria is within the Yorkshire Dales National Park, while the east of the county fringe is the North Pennines area of natural beauty. Much of Cumbria is mountainous, and it contains every peak in England over 3,000 feet or 910 metres above sea level, with the top of Scarfell Pike at 3,209 feet or 978 metres being the highest point in all of England. Cumbria has always been viewed as a mysterious corner of England. Over 15 million visitors flock to Cumbria each year, with the natural beauty offered by the Lake District in particular, drawn holiday makers from all over the world. But beneath the peaceful and serene surface lie a plethora of strange supernatural secrets. The prehistoric monuments and ancient buildings situated in Cumbria also provide the ideal haunting space for the hundreds if not thousands of ghosts that reside in this truly haunted county. Cumbria has many connections to Arthurian legend, and could stake a strong claim for being the territory of King Arthur and his legendary knights. There is in fact a henge monument near Penrith, known as Arthur's Round Table. The atmospheric ruins of Pendragon Castle is found in Kirkby Stephen, and is reputed to have been built by Uther Pendragon, the father of King Arthur, According to legend, Uther Pendragon and a hundred of his men were killed here when Saxon invaders poisoned the well. According to Sir Walter Scott's poem The Bridal of Triamain, written in 1813, 
Castle Rock of Triamine played host to King Arthur, and his daughter Guinness was cursed to an eternal slumber by Merlin. The curse lasted for 500 years when she was eventually awakened by Sir Ronald DeVoe. An alternative legend based upon Scott's poem tells of King Arthur entertaining a group of fairies at Castle Rock, and Merlin cursing one of the fairies to sleep forevermore. And legends of fairies across Cumbria is commonplace throughout the history of this ancient county. The Beetham fairy steps are found near the Beetham church and are cut into the limestone rock. It is said that if you can climb them without touching either side, you will be granted a wish by the fairies. Another location in Cumbria with links to fairy lore is Castle Howe, the site of a fairy home on the banks of Basselthwaite Lake near Kendal. A stone circle known as Elva Hill is said to be a place of fairy ritual. Unfortunately now only 15 of the original 30 stones remain. There are centuries of legend and folklore associated with Cumbria, but unusual occurrences continue to this very day. There are reports on a weekly, or possibly even a daily basis of encounters with ghosts and phantom creatures. One such example of a bizarre occurrence was 25 years back in 1998. Nursery Woods in Beckhamet hit the headlines across the country when a 7 foot tall Bigfoot type monster, covered from head to toe in ginger hair was seen drinking from a pond. It then stood upright and ran off into the trees. That was followed later that same year by reports of a huge winged creature flying over nursery woods. One of the eyewitnesses described the beast as resembling a pterodactyl from illustrations had seen in books of dinosaurs and the Jurassic Park movies. Way back in episode 19 we focused on Moncaster Castle in Ravenglass elsewhere in Cumbria. And now over this episode and the next, we will look at castles, halls, Roman forts, ancient stone circles, abbeys, lakes, waterfalls and even a lead mine, all said to be home to things that go bump in the night. So allow me to be your guide, in this, the first of a two part special ghost trail, which will see us visit 20 of the scariest places to be found in the beautiful, yet terrifying county of Cumbria. We will start in the northeast of the county and work our way south. Strap in as this is guaranteed to be one hell of a journey. Birderswald Roman Fort Birderswald is on the site of the Roman Fort Banner. It is the best preserved of the forts along Hadrian's Wall. Hadrian's Wall was built between 122 AD and 138 AD and it was an 80 Roman miles or 73 modern miles long barrier between the Roman province of Britannia and the Barbarian North. It stretches from Segedunum at Wall's End on the River Tyne in the east to Bournes on Solway in the west. Hadrian's Wall was made a UNESCO World Heritage Site in 1987. Along the wall were 17 Roman forts that would protect this far-flung corner of the Roman Empire. Banner is the 11th fort from the east end of the wall. It was built on a steep-sided promontory, and it was contained to the south by a meander of the river Irthing and by three units of soldiers. The name Banner is Latin for spur or tongue, which reflects the location of the site. It was occupied daily by a thousand Roman soldiers for almost 300 years until the Roman occupation in Britain came to an end. The fort will have originally comprised of barrack blocks, a hospital, granaries, a basilica, a headquarters building and the commander's house. The rectangular wall of the fort is still visible today as are the remains of the granaries and the basilica. Occupation on the site continued long after the Roman Empire fell in the 5th century with the existing buildings being used for many hundreds of years until a medieval tower house was built on the site. This tower house was replaced in the 16th century with a fortified home designed to protect its occupants from the border reavers. These were raiders who lived along the Anglo-Scottish border. A farmhouse was later built around the house and the site was used for farming up until as recently as 1984, at which point the land passed into the hands of Cumbria County Council 
and in 2004 English Heritage assumed responsibility for the running of Birderswald. In 1821, an altar was unearthed on the site, which revealed the Romans' name of Banner for the fort. The altar was dedicated to the woodland god Sylvanius by the Venator's Banniuses, which translates as the Hunters of Banner. The name of Birderswald was first used in the late 12th century and translates as the Farm of Oswald. The fort is thought to have once been named Camberglana, leading many to believe that this may well be the site of the fabled Camlan, where King Arthur fought his final battle in 537 AD and was fatally wounded by Mordred. These claims were strengthened between 1987 and 1992, when archaeological excavations revealed a large timber feasting hall built in the 5th or 6th century on the site of two Roman granaries. Tony Wilmot directed these excavations and suggested that after the Roman rule in Britain came to an end, the remains of the fort became a power base for a local war band descended from the Roman garrison that had been based here. In recent years, Birderswald has developed a real reputation for being haunted. The modern 39-bed farmhouse, which can be booked for groups wishing to stay overnight on the site of the fort, appears to be the most active area, with a variety of audible phenomena such as whispering late at night and the sounds of marching. Hadrian's Wall itself was the focus of an amazing report by an American family visiting the fort in 2005. Two teenage boys spotted two people dressed in Roman garb standing next to the wall 100 metres or so away from where they were stood. They assumed it was members of staff in period costume, so they turned to tell their parents, but when they turned back, there was no one there. They had a clear view, and in the few seconds it had taken to turn away and turn back, there was nowhere that these two figures could have gone, so that they would be out of their field of vision. When they were leaving the fort, they mentioned to the staff member on the desk of the visitor centre, and they were told that there was nobody in period dress working at the fort. So it appears that they had seen the full spectral apparition of Roman soldiers who would have been stationed at the fort over 1500 years earlier. Triamain Castle Triamain Castle, sometimes called Gilsland Castle, was built in 1340 atop a small glacial mound after King Edward III had granted Sir Roland de Vaux a license to crenellate. It was built with stone reclaimed from Hadrian's Wall. It is quadrangular in plan with towers on the east and the west sides. It will have been enclosed by a curtain wall and a moat. The purpose for it being built was to defend the barony of Gilsland from attacks by the border reavers, and in particular the Armstrong and Elliot family. During the reign of King Edward IV, the castle passed by marriage into the hands of Sir Richard Salkeld, and by 1510 it was in the ownership of Lord Thomas Dager. The castle was abandoned in 1569, and a report from 1580 describes the castle as being in ruinous condition. The tower was demolished in 1688, and a considerable section of the remaining castle collapsed in 1832, with the stone being used to repair adjacent farm buildings. The main internal building measured 22 metres by 21 metres, but only a single corner of it survives today. This is the southeast corner of the gatehouse. It will have originally stood at a little over 9 metres high, and it is still nearly its original height. The castle was perhaps the inspiration for Sir Walter Scott's poem, The Bridal of Triamain, written in 1813. It tells of King Arthur's daughter Guinneth being sentenced to an eternal slumber by Merlin. 500 years pass, and Sir Roland de Vaux, the creator of Triamain Castle, learns of the legend of Guinneth and sets on an epic quest to find her and win her hand. The ruinous castle is said to be the home of a tragic spirit known as the Shivering Boy. The tale dates back to the 15th century and tells of a six-year-old boy who inherited the castle when his parents passed away. His uncle became his guardian, but he was a cruel man and he wanted Triamain Castle for himself so he led the young boy out onto Thirlwell Common in the middle of a winter storm. The young boy died in the snow. However, in death, the boy returned, haunting the family who lived in the castle which was rightfully his. He'd walk the halls in the dead of night, touching the family members with his icy fingers as they slept, his teeth audibly chattering all the while. Then most terrifyingly of all, they'd feel him sit upon the bed and say in a whispered voice, Cowled, cowled forevermore, before vanishing. 
The castle as it was in the 15th century is all but gone, but it's believed that the shivering boy haunts the ruins of the castle to this very day, and if you are out amongst the remains late at night, you may feel his icy touch. Carlisle Castle Carlisle Castle was first built on a sandstone bluff between the River Eden and the River Caldew during the reign of William II of England. At that time North and West Cumbria were known as the county town of Cumberland and it was still considered a part of Scotland. King William II, the son of William the Conqueror, drove the Scots out of Cumberland on his arrival and claimed the area for England. There was a need to keep the northern border of England secure from the threat of the invading Scots, so in 1092 William II ordered work to begin on a castle. The castle was an earthen and wood style, built upon the site of a sequence of Roman forts dating from between the 1st and the 4th centuries that had served the western end of Hadrian's Wall. During 1122, Henry I visited Cumberland in order that the castle be refortified in stone and that a keep be constructed. However, work didn't begin on the stone keep until 10 years later in 1132, and in 1135, King David I of Scotland seized the castle, and Cumberland was once more under Scottish rule. Under David I, the castle keep was completed and city walls were added. In 1157, Henry II of England fought the Scots and won Cumberland back. He then added curtain walls to the castle as an extra level of protection. The castle changed hands again in 1216 with the Scots under the command of Alexander II. The castle suffered considerable damage in the course of this battle and the battles that followed as the English fought to reclaim it. In the mid-13th century England succeeded in retaking Carlisle Castle. However, by now it was a ruin. In around 1280 King Edward I, known as Edward Longshanks, ordered that Scottish prisoners at Carlisle Castle should be incarcerated with chains tight around their necks and they should be placed upon a ledge. The prisoner would try in vain to fend off tiredness and sleep, but inevitably each and every one of them would succumb to exhaustion and fall asleep, resulting in them falling from the ledge and hanging themselves by the tight chain around their neck. Repairs were carried out on Carlisle Castle at the end of the 13th century, and between 1306 and 1307 the castle was used as a seat of government for the English Parliament. Further repairs were carried out between 1378 and 1383. Between the 18th of May and the 13th of July 1568, two months after her abdication from the Scottish throne, Mary Queen of Scots was imprisoned within Carlisle Castle. She was held in a tower in the southeast corner which became known as Mary's Tower but has since been demolished. In 1644, during the English Civil War, the castle was besieged by parliamentary forces for eight months. The garrison surrendered after running out of food and being forced to resort to eating rats, their dogs and eventually their horses. The castle was retaken by the King in 1648. The final battle ever on English soil, and the most important one for the city of Carlisle and its castle, was during the Second Jacobite Uprising against George II in 1745. The forces of Prince Charles Edward Stuart, affectionately known as Bonnie Prince Charlie, travelled south from Scotland into England, reaching as far south as Derby. Carlisle and its castle was seized and fortified by the Jacobites. However, they were driven north by the forces of William Augustus, Duke of Cumberland. Carlisle was recaptured, and 127 Jacobites were jailed and held in a room on the first floor of the keep. The prisoners weren't given enough food and water and they were mistreated. The desperate prisoners led by their survival instincts licked the stones in the wall to get moisture. Two men perished within the cell before sentence could be passed. The remaining prisoners were found guilty and sentenced to death. The condemned were placed on black hurdles and dragged through the streets where their decapitated heads of their fallen comrades were displayed. The men were hung, drawn and quartered on Gallows Hill. They were hung, but cut down just before they breathed their last. Then they were sliced open and had their entrails ripped out and burnt before their very eyes. Then finally, they had their heads cut off. Some parts of the castle were demolished to be used as raw materials in the 19th century, leaving the castle as it stands today. The army moved in to take hold of the castle, which was then the regimental depot of the Border Regiment, 
until control passed to the Department of Environment in 1959 and then later to English Heritage, who still manage the castle today. This impressive fortress has bore witness to a great deal of death, torture and suffering in the last 900 years, and it comes as little surprise that all too regularly the ghosts of soldiers are seen and the screams of the once incarcerated reverberate within the stone walls of Carlisle Castle. One of the spectral soldiers reported at Carlisle Castle may well be that of a sergeant who committed suicide by hanging himself from a beam in the 1800s. In the years that followed, his former colleagues would often report seeing him walking silently through the keep. In 1820, the skeletal remains of a lady was found bricked up within one of the walls of the captain's tower. Three valuable rings remained on her fingers, and she was partially clothed in scraps of a tartan dress. It's unknown who she is, but evidence indicated that she was walled up when she was still alive. The grisly discovery seems to have disturbed her spirit, and she now haunts the castle forevermore, searching for whoever bricked her up within that wall to die. She is blamed for an incident which occurred three years later in 1823, in which a soldier was patrolling, when he was suddenly confronted by the mysterious figure of a woman. She didn't move or speak when he challenged her, so he lunged at her with his bayonet. The blade met no resistance. To his abject horror, it simply passed straight through her and struck the stone of the wall. The figure then vanished before his eyes. He was found afterwards in a state of shock, and he told his account to fellow soldiers. A few hours later, he collapsed and died. In 1992, the alarms went off in the King's Own Border Regiment Museum three nights in a row, indicating something had moved underneath the arch between the downstairs exhibition and the gift shop area. The building that the museum occupies is once said to have been a chapel, and the area of movement is believed to have been a crypt at one time. In the first floor of the keep is the room in which the Jacobites were imprisoned in 1745, evident by the licking stones which remain to this day. There is said to be a malevolent spirit active within that room. It appears to have a dislike for everyone, and has been blamed for visitors and staff reporting being pushed, scratched and bitten. Dalston Hall Hotel The land on which Dalston Hall Hotel stands is steeped in over 1500 years of history, evidenced by the Roman remains that are still visible in the area. The land was granted to the Dalston family in 1301 by Robert de Meschins, Earl of Cumberland. The Dalstons spent the 200 years that followed helping to defend the borderlands in regular raids by the Scots, often joining the garrison at Carlisle Castle. By the year 1500, the family's fortunes had increased, and it was at this time that work began on Dalston Hall, which began life as a peel tower built by the first John Dalston, who dedicated it to his beloved wife, Elizabeth, who he married in 1507. Elizabeth was from a very wealthy family, and her father owned the manors of Kirkbride and Dockery. After Henry VIII's dissolutions of the monasteries, John's son, Thomas, increased the family's land by buying six manors and various monastic lands. As the family's wealth increased, the hall was extended with buildings added to the east and the west. During the Jacobite Rebellion of 1645, Dalston Hall, with its fortified peel tower, became the headquarters of the Parliamentarian General, David Leslie. The Jacobite Rebellion brought with it a siege, which saw much bloodshed at the hall and the surrounding area. The final member of the Dalston family to live in the hall was Sir George Dalston. Having no male heir, he sold the estate in 1761 for £5,060 to a grocer based in London. Sir George died four years later in 1765. In 1897, the estate was sold to Edmund Wrightstead, who carried out extensive restoration work on the interior of Dalston Hall and constructed the entrance side of the building. A leading antiquarian of the day wrote that the result was a magnificent mansion surpassing perhaps even its ancient glories. In recent years, the hall was used as a private house for a time, and then it became a youth training centre, and in 1971, it was converted into a hotel. Dalston Hall Hotel is a luxurious retreat, set in beautiful grounds on the northern edge of the Lake District National Park. However, after dark, the floodlit hotel seems to come alive with the ghosts of people long gone, some who died peaceful deaths and felt an attachment to the building throughout their life, and others who died in the most violent of circumstances. 
The hotel has found notoriety in recent years as one of the most paranormally active buildings in all of Cumbria, with reported sightings of full spectral apparitions on almost a daily basis. After passing through the reception of the hotel, you enter the baronial hall, dating from around 1500. This is one of the most ancient areas of the current hotel, as well as the most active. Music laughter and excited talking has been heard coming from the empty hall during the dead of night. Candles have been seen to light themselves by astonished members of staff. Overlooking the baronial hall was the minstrels gallery and a woman in a Tudor dress has been seen here. She is seen so regularly that the hotel staff have named her Lady Jane. She was a teenage maidservant who fell in love with a married gardener at the hall and was found dead after a passionate affair. It's unknown if she was murdered or if she committed suicide, although mediums to the hall have suggested that she threw herself from the peel tower to her death when the gardener called an end to their affair. There has also been reports of a woman seen on a balcony, but she is unusual in that only the bottom half of her is seen. It's unknown if this too is Lady Jane or if it's a second spirit. Near the bottom of the staircase is a heavy iron gate which dates back to the original 15th century part of the hall and a figure of a man has been seen standing on the other side of the gate. He never moves, he just stands totally still before dissolving away to nothing. The spiral staircase ascends to the top of the tower and the figure of a woman has been seen floating up the stairs. Disembodied footsteps on the stone steps have been heard on countless occasions. The hotel's library was once a chapel and the room is plagued with the sounds of the cries and the barks of dogs, seeming to come from the cellars which run below the room. The sounds of barrels being rolled around in the cellars have been reported in the middle of the night. The extensive cellars wind beneath the building like a rabbit warren, and date from each period of the building's history, indicated from the different stone used throughout. It is in the cellar that a truly terrifying spirit resides, an entity known as Mr Fingernails. Several mediums to the hall have independently made contact with Mr Fingernails, a nickname first given to him by a group of paranormal investigators who had an encounter with him in 2004. He is described as being non-human and exudes a feeling of pure evil. He appears in the form of a dark fog and can rise up from the cellar through the floor. He has long bony fingers with long sharp claw-like nails which earned him his nickname. One medium claimed to make contact with the creature and was then physically attacked, complaining of being scratched. He lifted up his shirt to reveal three deep scratches the length of his chest. Another spirit believed to haunt the cellars is nicknamed the Handyman. This nickname comes from an occurrence during the 1960s when a workman was servicing the boilers in the cellar. A friendly man came over and said hello. He was wearing tweed trousers and had a large physical frame. He kindly passed tools to the workman until his work was finished. Before leaving, the workman visited the reception to thank them for sending somebody down to help him. However, reception were unaware of anybody else in the hall at the time, and nobody could account for the mysterious, yet very helpful man. Room 4 is home to one of the most commonly reported sightings at Dalston Hall Hotel. The lonely figure of a young lady standing at the window, staring out into the night. She is known as Sad Emily, and she is dressed in a white dress drawn tightly at the waist, on her head is a white headband. She has a ring on her finger, which she fingers as she stares out into the darkness outside. An older lady comes into the room, speaking to her as if comforting her, and then she leaves. Mediums who have picked up on this spirit have claimed that she is waiting for her true love, a man who never returned to her, and so she will wait for him for all eternity. Lady Jane has also been seen in room 4 sat by the fireplace and she has been blamed for some guests waking during the night to find that their bedding has been taken off them as they have slept, and it's been folded neatly at the bottom of the bed. Guests in room 4 have also reported waking up with a feeling of abject terror, convinced someone or something is watching them. Some guests have been so scared that they've gone to reception during the night to be asked to move to another room. In room 12, the sound of giggling girls has been heard coming from the bathroom. This room has the best view of the gardens of any of the rooms in the hotel, and several witnesses have reported an elegant female figure walking through the gardens at night. The corridor that runs outside rooms 4, 5 and 6 was the scene of a murder. A young woman was taken from a party taking place in the baronial hall and dragged by her hair by a large man. She was beaten up, raped and then thrown from the window to her death. 
Residents staying in rooms 4, 5 and 6 have reported hearing sounds of something being dragged outside in the corridor in the early hours of the morning. In room 6, visitors have reported the terrifying sight of the wardrobe door opening and a female form walking out of the inky blackness into the room with them. To the guest's utter horror, she then climbs into bed with them. When the understandably panicked guest reaches for the light switch, she then vanishes the moment the light comes on. In room 19, guests have woken to see the dark figure of a man standing over them. Mediums to the hall have suggested that this spirit is benevolent, but he considers the room to be his room, and he doesn't like guests invading his space. Footsteps have been heard walking past the room, sounding like they're walking on a stone floor, despite the floor outside the room being carpeted. Throughout all of the bedrooms, there have been reports of electrical items such as televisions, kettles and lights, turning themselves on and off during the night. Suta Fell Suta Fell is the most easterly of the northern fells and stands at 1,713 feet above sea level. It offers staggering views across the Pennines, and it's well known for having one of, if not the best authenticated ghost story of all time. The stories of Suta Fell's ghosts date back to 1735 when a farmhand, Daniel Strickett, was standing half a mile from the fell on Midsummer's Eve when he was astonished to see a spectral army on the eastern side of the peak. They appeared to be very well disciplined and were marching five abreast, with officers on horseback riding back and forth along the ranks. He watched for over an hour, as they marched east to west until they disappeared and turned through a dark cleft on the summit. He told his story to William Lancaster, the owner of Blake Hill's farm for which he worked. Not surprisingly, he was disparaged from repeating this story to others, as they both knew that the sides of Suta Fell are sheer perpendiculars, making it impossible for an army to march upon it. However, words of Strickett's ghost army got out to the local villagers who ridiculed him. Despite this, Strickett never changed his story, and insisted that he had seen an army of thousands upon the fell. Exactly two years later, on Midsummer's Eve 1737, the Phantom Army was seen again, this time by William Lancaster, the farmer who had rejected his farmhand's claim so vehemently on the previous occasion. William rushed into the farmhouse and shouted for his family to come and see. They all stepped outside into the twilight to see what all the excitement was about. Only to be dumbfounded when they too saw legions of soldiers marching silently over the inaccessible mountain top. They watched in awe for over an hour until darkness descended and blotted out the amazing scene. William told Strickett that he had too seen the army, and when word reached the local villagers, he too was lambasted, in the same way that his farmhand had been two years earlier. Six years later in 1743, a Wilton Hill farmer and one of his employees reported witnessing a man and dog on Sutafel chasing some horses. Suddenly the man, dog and all the horses disappeared over a precipice without a sound. The men ran over to see if they could help. However, their search turned up nothing at all. It was as if they'd simply vanished. Two years later, again on Midsummer's Eve, ten years after Daniel Strickett first saw the Phantom Army, William Lancaster was determined to see the army once more, and this time he was determined to ensure that more people witnessed the sight. So he went to Wilton Hill and Suta Fellside and rounded up 26 people curious enough to accompany him to his farm to await evening, and hopefully the return of the Spectral Army. Sure enough, around the hour of 8pm, the Phantom Army returned, this time interspersed with carriages. One witness timed the occurrence and it lasted for over two hours. So convinced were many of them by what they'd seen that they scaled the fell the following day looking for footprints, horseshoes and carriage tracks. However, they found no evidence that the army had even been there. Every single witness knew what they'd seen and they agreed that they were prepared to swear on it before a magistrate. Forty years later, in 1785, two survivors put their names to an attestation of what they had witnessed on that evening. Not since the sighting of 1745 has the Phantom Army of Sutafel been seen again. Nenthead Mines Heritage Centre The Nenthead Mines Heritage Centre is the largest lead mining complex with public access in the UK. It is in the village of Nenthead on Alston Moor and was the first purpose-built industrial village in the country, created in 1828. Nenthead is also the highest village in all of England. During the 18th century, the mine was a major producer of silver and lead, 
and Nenthead was the first village in England to develop electric street lighting. This was only possible due to the power generated within the mines. In the 17th century, individuals and small companies owned mining leases in the area and sold their ore for smelting to the Wrighton Company, who were based near Newcastle upon Tyne. The Quaker-controlled Wrighton Company merged with the Governor and Company in 1704, forming the London-led Company, often called the Quaker Company due to many of the shareholders being Quakers. In 1715, the manor at Alston Moor was seized by the Crown as the owner, James Radcliffe III, Earl of Derwentwater, was executed for his part in the Jacobite Rebellion. In 1735, the land was granted to the Royal Hospital for Seamen at Greenwich. The mining leases at Alston Moor were let to Colonel George Liddell in 1736, and the first smelting mill was built. In 1745, the London Lead Company had taken over the leases from Liddell and began to mine Nenthead. The London Lead Company operated the mine at Nenthead until 1882, when the Nenthead and Tyndale Lead and Zinc Company took over. Silver production was increased and smelting continued for 14 years, until the Belgian company, the Ville Montague Zinc Company, took over the site in 1896. The site was modernised and ore was mined until the last of the ore came out in around 1920. Production slowed and the spoil heaps were reworked. Eventually work ceased at the mine in 1965 and the site was abandoned. The buildings were left to decay and collapse for over 30 years until 1996, when the North Pennines Heritage Trust bought the land and began restoration of the buildings. The Heritage Centre was opened to the public on the 15th of July 1996 by John Craven, famed for Country File and Newsround. The Cars Level Mine was restored and opened for mine tours in July 2000. The life of a miner was a difficult one, spending eight hours a day underground in cramped and wet conditions. It was also a dangerous one. The average life expectancy of a miner was 45, with many losing their life to a disease that they called the black spit. Anthracosis was a lung disease caused by inhaling dust from the mine. Once they began coughing up a black liquid, the miner knew there was nothing a doctor could do to save them. Death was sure to follow. The miners of the day used to believe that the mines were haunted by spirits called knockers. It's believed that they were the spirits of souls trapped between heaven and hell, and cursed to live below ground for eternity. The miners believed that the knockers lived in the deepest, darkest parts of the mine, and they were blamed for any distant creaking or knocking. Miners' belief in knockers was a tradition across the country, and we'll never know if the miners truly believed that the mine was haunted, or if they were simply keeping up with tradition. However, what we do know is that the Nenthead Mines Heritage Centre is undoubtedly one of the most active locations in Cumbria today. The phenomena reported at the centre since it opened in 1996 has been frequent, varied and terrifying. Disembodied footsteps have been heard by visitors in many of the buildings throughout the centre, and the Assay House in particular. Light anomalies, often known as orbs, are also seen regularly, even in broad daylight, floating with purpose in some of the buildings. Animals have refused to enter some of the buildings, their eyes appearing to follow something moving which is unseen to the human eye, often followed by barking, growling and whining. This has also been reported at the entrance to Carl's Level Mine. Within the mine, voices have been heard where nobody else has been present. Stones have also been thrown at visitors by unseen hands. Perhaps strangest of all are the impossible reports of the emergency telephone system based within the depths of the mine calling up to the surface when nobody is in the mine at the time. When I was researching my book Ghostly Cumbria, I spoke to Steve Taylor of Alone in the Dark Entertainment, who led an investigation at Nenthead Mines Heritage Centre on the 24th of April 2010, and he told me of the amazing occurrences that he experienced that night. He said, We arrived at around 7pm and had a walk around the site. There was snow still on the hills and it was bitterly cold. Our investigation began at around 10pm and straight away things began to happen. The first odd thing was that during the introduction we heard a loud commotion outside the room we were in. There was lots of men shouting and it sounded like people fighting and a panic, even what sounded like horses. We could see out all around us as the door was open to the room, we rushed out and nothing, not a person in sight. The moors were just dark and cold with only the sounds of the dead. Shortly afterwards I was carrying out a walk around with a medium and I saw a pair of legs on a modern, man-made bridge. Just a pair of legs in dark trousers and boots, but there was nothing visible above the waist. They walked around a corner and then dispersed into thin air. 
During a seance in one of the downstairs office rooms, the Ouija board went crazy, and the air temperature dropped from 9 degrees Celsius to minus 2, and it remained at minus 2 until the Ouija board stopped. At the point the Ouija board stopped, it was accompanied by the office door opening and what sounded like footsteps leaving the room. During the seance, we also heard what sounded like a man's voice speaking in a language that none of us could understand. We have since found out that Italian miners lived in this room. After the seance, Alison Dunn, our medium, picked up on a blocked tunnel under the same room and explained that a man was trapped and died within that tunnel and his skeletal remains are still there. We had no knowledge of this at the time and it was later proved to be correct. While in Carl's level mine, we were hit by stones thrown at us, footsteps that could not be explained and some strange bright lights when all the lights were off. We used the assay house in our hub for the evening and we recorded some great electronic voice phenomena. We asked, when were you here? And we captured a reply which sounded like five or six different voices trying to speak over one another. But the answer we recorded sounded like, yes, 16, 33, 27. We also asked, did you die here? And we recorded a man's voice saying, yes, killed. We left the room shortly afterwards, but we left a locked off video camera in the room. We were joined by local radio station Spark FM close to midnight and they witnessed a bright flash from the assay house as they were stood outside. It was described as being like a bright explosion with no sound. At this point I took a break and I got chatting to a mine explorer who was staying at the Mill Cottage bunkhouse with his friend. He told me that he'd been to the pub earlier for a meal and a drink and when they got back to the bunkhouse he was about to walk up the staircase when he saw a dark figure of a man reach the top of the stairs and go round the corner. As he took his boots off, he spoke to the man thinking that it was his roommate. The figure did not reply and he heard the door shut. He walked up the stairs into the bedroom and when he opened the door the lights were out. He was in total darkness. So he turned the lights on and asked his friend if he was alright with the light being on. He looked towards his friend's bed and he realised there was nobody else in the room with him. Despite him clearly seeing somebody walk up the stairs ahead of him and then he heard this door close. He was so shook up that he left the building to get some fresh air. And this happened just before he started talking to me. After he told me this story he asked why I was here. I explained that we were here on a ghost hunt. The blood from the guy's face drained away and he turned white. During another Ouija board session in the hub, things took a turn for the worse and things really began to happen. At first the Ouija board was weak and kept stopping. But then the table started to rock and tip, becoming more aggressive and powerful. And this was a six foot long table. A spirit identified herself as being called Emily. And she said that she died in the mine in 1936. She also told us that she was 19 year old when she died. At this point, we were interrupted by our radio. We were told that a guest investigator, Tony, had entered the cars level mine with the guys from Spark FM. At this point, the planchette went crazy it went really fast in a circle, and then it spelled out the words bad, then evil. Then to our abject horror, it spelled out, Die Tony, Die Spark FM. It then explained that there was something evil in the mine, and they would die tonight. At one point we all took our fingers off, but it still kept moving. It was becoming so powerful. At this point we decided to close the seance down. This brought an end to our night but we were later told of many, many sightings of dark figures in the mine and disembodied voices being heard constantly. Beacon Hill High above the market town of Penrith is Beacon Hill, which stands 937 feet above sea level and is named for the beacons that have been lit here in times of war as far back as 1296, when there was a constant threat of invasion from the Scots. At this period of time, the beacons would have been constructed of piles of branches. Beacons were used as a warning and used to call for aid from across the north with others being lit at Carlisle, Kirkuswald and Orton Scar. There has now been a building atop the hill for over five centuries and a signal fire was last lit during the Napoleonic Wars. In 1719 a monument known as Beacon Tower was built of sandstone taken from the hill to replace the previous structures. Since the late 18th century Beacon Hill has also been known as Gibbet Hill. This is as a result of one of the low points in the history of the district. On Tuesday the 18th of November 1766, Thomas Parker, a butcher who lived in Langwithby, 
was returning home from Penrith Market when he called in at the Cross Keys public house in Carlton. Thomas was a familiar face at the Cross Keys and he was celebrating a particularly good day's takings. He had a good night, buying drinks for friends and drinking far too much himself. When he came to leave, the landlord offered Thomas a bed for the night rather than walk home in his drunken state. But Thomas loudly declined the offer, claiming to be fine. However, Thomas never made it home. His lifeless body was found in the Langwithby Road, close to the junction with the Beacon Road. He had been beaten to death in a vicious attack, and his purse had been taken. In the following month, a man called Thomas Nicholson, who was Parker's godson, was questioned about the murder, and he was later put on trial at Carlisle Assizes. He was found guilty of Thomas Parker's murder, and sentenced to be executed and hung in chains. On the 31st of August 1767, a large crowd gathered to watch the condemned, Thomas Nicholson, as he dangled by his neck until dead. Once he was confirmed deceased, his body was cut down, and it was placed in an iron cage hanging from a gibbet erected at the top of Beacon Hill. The Edenhall Parish Register includes the following documented recording of the event. Thomas Parker, Householder, November the 21st. This man was found murdered on the road from Penrith to Edenhall, near the place called Nancy Dobson Stone, on Tuesday night, the 18th of this instance, for which murder Thomas Nicholson was executed and hung in chains near the same place, August 31st, 1767. For almost seven months, his body was left hanging from the gibbet as a warning to others. The clothes were soon stripped from the lifeless felon by the winter gales, and the fauna of the area began to feast on his rotten flesh. One witness to the gory scene claimed that the body appeared almost alive, such was the movement of the maggots and the insect life that were living within his corpse and eating him from the inside out. Foxes and wild dogs would fight over the meat that dropped from the cage, and within a matter of weeks the bones had been picked clean and all that was left was a skeleton rattling eerily in the wind. On one particularly windy day in March of the following year, the gibbet blew down and all that remained of Nicholson was a pile of bones. The people of Edenhall gathered the bones together and wrapped them in a sheet and buried them in an unmarked grave nearby. Poet William Wordsworth went riding on the hill in 1775, aged only five, with a family servant called James and they became separated. William climbed down from his small horse and stumbled upon the spot at which the gibbet had stood. A local who had not wanted the murder of poor Thomas Parker to be forgotten had cut the initials TPM into the turf, standing for Thomas Parker murdered and young William saw these initials. It left a lasting impression on him, and later he penned the following lines. Dismounting down the rough and stony moor, I led my horse, and stumbling on at length, came to a bottom where in former times, a murderer had been hung in iron chains. The gibbet mast had mouldered down, the bones and iron case were gone, but on the turf, hard by soon after the fell deed was wrought, some unknown hand had carved the murderer's name. During harsh winter nights, the ghost of Nicholson returns to Beacon Hill. His skeletal remains staring through empty eye sockets within the iron cage hanging from the gibbet arm. Other visitors to the summit of the hill have claimed to smell the overpowering stench of rotten meat. The unmistakable smell of death. Another possibly unrelated occurrence has been the sound of a male voice or voices talking quietly within the Beacon Tower. An unsubstantiated legend of the area states that in centuries past, unmarried mothers, often pregnant by their employer and fearing for their livelihood, would leave their newborn babies on Beacon Hill to die. Broomhall Broomhall, which is actually spelt B-R-O-U-G-H-A-M, was dubbed by the Victorians the Windsor of the North for its links with royalty. King George V was a regular guest, as was King Edward VII. The hall was originally built in the 13th century as a fortified manor house, founded by Gilbert de Brougham. It was built upon lands rich with history, with the stone hall added in 1307 by Ricardus de Brun of Dummelock, standing on the angle of an earlier Roman fort of Brokevum. By the turn of the 16th century, there was a complex range of buildings, including a manor house and a gate, to which a 17th century peel tower was later added. In 1676, the hall was sold out of the Broom family, the estate being purchased by a Mr James Bird. 
1726, exactly 50 years after it had been sold, the estate was bought back into the family by John Broom. The hall was extended and enlarged between 1829 and 1847 to designs by the architect Lewis Knockles Cottenham, with further alterations being made during the 1860s. Following the collapse of the family's fortune, Broom Hall passed out of the family once more in the 1930s, and it began to decay and fall into ruin. During World War II, it became a secret weapons research centre, specifically designing a futuristic optical light weapon for tanks, designed to temporarily blind the enemy, with blindless lasting for up to two weeks. Churchill and Eisenhower both visited the ruin of Broom Hall during this period. The substantial remains of the once prosperous Broom Hall are currently the subject of a restoration project which has been ongoing since 1985. There have been numerous reports in recent years of strange happenings at the ancient manor house, with paranormal investigators and mediums who have visited claiming that Broom Hall may contain a doorway into the spirit world. Groups of shadowy figures have been seen, watches and clocks stop all on their own, footsteps have been heard as is laughing, inexplicable sounds are often heard echoing around the hall, and objects have been seen by several witnesses to move all on their own. In 2010, I spoke with the owner of Broom Hall, Christopher Terry, about the hall's links to the paranormal. He told me, Yes, Broom Hall has a haunted history going back to Victorian times, long before the current craze of paranormal investigation started. One haunting dating back to Victorian times is that of a tall man with piercing eyes and a wheezing chest. He has been captured on photos in more recent years and seems to enjoy being seen. He was especially fond of scaring women of the day working at the hall by whispering in their ear or stroking their arm. One scribe of the time wrote of the spirit that it was believed to be a man who was charged with raping three women before he was beaten to death in Penrith. The name of this man has been lost to history. The most famous story from the annals of Broomhall's long history is the legend of an unknown warrior skull which was bricked up inside a wall to bring luck and prosperity to the Broom family. The second Lord Broom wrote of his discovery of a skull, sword and spur found within a wall. It seems likely this is the same skull as the one referenced in the legend, but we can never be sure. The legend tells that many years ago the skull was removed from the hall and the family suffered the most terrifying haunting disturbances and torment. It was quickly returned to the hall and reinterred within the wall, at which point peace returned to Broom Hall. Over the centuries that followed, the legendary tale of Broomhall's skull was passed down from generation of the Broom family, and retold countless times, with all believing it to be nothing more than a superstition, as it appeared to be. However, it appears that it may be far, far more than just a story, as Christopher Terry explained to me of a grisly discovery made during the restoration process. He said, I can certainly vouch for the existence of the skull, because during the restoration process we came across it. It was very green in colour. We made sure it was reinterred within the 58 inch thick wall, exactly where we'd found it. The skull had been poleaxed. There was an equilateral triangle of small holes in the top of the skull. I showed the skull to my dentist, and it was the skull of a male aged around 35 years old. A stone epitaph including all of the details we know about the skull was carved in homage to the unknown warrior, and is today visible on the wall of a small room. The inscription is copied from an earlier one from an unknown date and reads, unknown soldier from the sunlit shore who paid the price in an unknown war for an unknown god in an unknown time may peace eternal now be thine pray lie within this ancient wall and guard that it should never fall on the 19th of december 1745 the english defeated the scots at the last battle ever to take place on english soil the battle of clifton moor this took place very close to the hall and ever since the sounds of battles have been heard in and around the hall in the dead of night, horses galloping, the clash of blade on blade, and the screams and moans of people dying. The Lord Chancellor's Den is an overgrown area, featuring a sculpture of Jesus Christ on the cross. Visitors have reported the feeling of being watched when in this area. A medium picked up on a woman crying at the feet of this statue as her son, a young boy in his early teens, begging his mother to help him, was struck across the head with a blunt object and he was killed as a sacrifice in this room. The medium added that the statue was not in the area at the time of the murder but the woman will remain forever at Broom Hall 
unable to find peace at seeing her young son killed before her eyes and being helpless to prevent it. During a paranormal investigation at the hall in January 2009, a medium picked up on the spirit of a 15-year-old boy called James who fell to his death while working on the hall. His body was hidden and his death was covered up. The medium also claimed to pick up on a lady who was carried to the top of the tower by soldiers and thrown from the tower to her death. When I was researching my book Ghostly Cumbria, I spoke to Angela Chatterton of the Grey Ladies team who investigated Broom Hall on the 18th of April 2009 with terrifying results. She told me, We arrived at Broom Hall on a dry sunny afternoon, so we took advantage by taking lots of outside photographs which captured the history of the location before dark. The Grey Ladies team were also invited to join the Mostly Ghostly team from Dumfries along with a couple of local residents. The most amazing activity occurred during our final vigil of the night. We had all felt some kind of energy was building up in the furniture shop earlier in the evening, so we headed back. As we approached the furniture shop, our EMF meter suddenly went crazy outside. It was clear that some kind of energy level had built up around the shop, so we had no option but to go inside for our final vigil. We nervously huddled around the large centre table, having set up cameras and other equipment around the shop. People started to note the room temperature was dropping, so I asked if any of the spirits were with us. Immediately a loud bang was made on the shop window and the EMF meter started to screech which was lying in the middle of our table. We could not get it to switch off and the noise lasted for 10 minutes. This event became our best ever investigation moment as it really did feel like we witnessed something genuinely paranormal without putting it down to the weather elements or somebody walking about. By this time it was approaching 2am so we called it a night, packed up and left on a real high from the evening's amazing events. Castle Rig Stone Circle Every year thousands of visitors come to paint and photograph the breathtaking monument of Castle Rig Stone Circle, whereas others come to marvel at this astonishing feat of prehistoric man dating back to around 3200 BC, the beginning of the late Neolithic period, and wonder how, why and by whom it was built. Although we likely never truly understand the origins of Castle Rig Stone Circle, it is widely accepted that it was used for ceremonial or religious purposes with precise alignments being discovered with the sun, moon and stars. Although this is not conclusive evidence of why over 5,000 years ago, many hundreds of people using only rope made of twisted bark would spend many, many years moving boulders, each one weighing over 10 tonnes, and place them in this spot. The circle measures around a third of an acre Originally, there were 42 stones, of which 38 stones of various sizes and shape remain. The tallest is 2.3 metres high, and the heaviest is estimated to weigh in excess of 16 tonnes. Just inside the eastern side of the circle is a rectangle of 10 stones known as a cove, the purpose of which is unknown. Castle Rig Stone Circle was bought in 1913 by Canon Hardwick Rawnsley, co-founder of the National Trust. Many visitors have noticed that Castle Rig Stone Circle has an unusual atmosphere, no doubt helped by the dramatic backdrop of the Tower Cumbrian Fells that surround the ancient stone circle. There are regular reports of strange blue lights that appear to dart from stone to stone. It is worth noting that this is a fairly common sight at stone circles all across the UK. It is unknown if this is a natural occurrence caused by the rocks, or if it is something otherworldly, perhaps the unusual lights are the result of some ancient ritual. An eyewitness account by a Mr T Singleton, published in 1919 in English Mechanic magazine, describes his encounter with strange white lights while walking at Castle Rig Stone Circle late at night. It read, When we were at a point near which the track branches off to the Druid Circle, we all at once saw a rapidly moving light, as bright as the acetylene lamp of a bicycle, and we instinctively stepped to the road boundary wall to make way for it, but nothing came. As a matter of fact, the light travelled at right angles to the road, say 20 feet above our level, possibly 200 yards or so away. It was a white light, and having crossed the road it suddenly disappeared. Whether it went out or passed behind an obstruction is impossible to say, as I have not yet had an opportunity again of visiting the place during daylight. There are certainly no crossroads there. We then saw a number of lights possibly a third of a mile away, directly in the direction of the Druid Circle. 
but of course much fainter, no doubt due to distance. Moving backwards and forwards horizontally, we stood watching them for a long time, and then only left as it was so late that people at the hotel might think that we were lost on the mountains. Whilst we were watching a remarkable incident happened, one of the lights, and only one, came straight to the spot where we were standing, at first very faint. As it approached the light increased its intensity. When it came quite near, I was in no doubt whether I should stoop below the boundary wall as the light would pass directly over our heads, but when it came close to the wall it slowed down, stopped, quivered and slowly went out, as if the matter producing the light had become exhausted. It was globular, white, with a nucleus possibly six feet or so in diameter, and just high enough above ground to pass over our heads. There have been reports in recent years by visitors, both during daylight hours and after darkness has fallen, of chanting heard coming from within the stone circle. Superstition holds that if you attempt to count the number of stones you will get a different number each time. The National Trust Information Board at the monument has the official number of stones listed as 40. There is also a local tradition of making a wish while standing in the centre of the circle. Aera Force the most famous of the Lake District waterfalls, Aera Force drops an impressive 66 feet from beneath the stone arch footbridge which was once a pack horse bridge, and offers a spectacular view from the top as the water makes its magnificent leap, sending spray high into the air. The word force is used in many parts of northern England and comes from the old Norse word fors. In the 1780s the Howard family of nearby Greystoke Castle owned a hunting lodge near Aera Force and renovated the lodge into what is today Lyup's Tower. They landscaped the area around the force planting over half a million trees. In 1846, an arboretum was created by the Howard family in the area below the waterfall, with over 200 specimens of firs, pines, spruces and cedars being planted. The lake poet William Wordsworth paid many visits to the area around Aera Force. It's believed he was inspired to write his poem Daffodils, with the famous opening line, I wandered lonely as a cloud, as he saw daffodils growing along the Ullswater shore. The fall is mentioned in three of William Wordsworth's poems. In The Somnambulist, written in 1828, Wordsworth tells of a tragic medieval legend. The former hunting lodge at Aera Force was once the home to a girl named Emma who was engaged to a knight, Sir Eglamour. Sir Eglamour had sailed to foreign shores to do gallant deeds worthy of his true love, and months passed by and he did not return. Emma grew distracted and each night she could be found sleepwalking along the waterfall. One night Sir Eglamore returned and as he neared Aera Force he could clearly see in the moonlight a white robed figure walking silently along the roaring waterfall. At once he could tell it was his beloved Emma. He rushed to her and as he touched her shoulder she awoke and as she saw the face of her love she was so surprised that she fell backwards into the angry torrent of Aera Force. The knight jumped in to save her but she died in his arms. The heartbroken knight built himself a hermit cell in a cave nearby and saw out his days there alone. Although the sad tale of Emma and her death at the force appears to be nothing more than a legend, there have been reported sightings of a spectral lady dressed in white in Aera Force on several occasions over the last 200 years. On one such occasion back in 1839, Miss Smith decided to explore Aera Force alone and successfully climbed up alongside the waterfall for about half an hour but then she found herself trapped within a cave. She managed to find her way out of the cave, but found herself on the brink of a chasm with nowhere to go. She began to panic. All around her were rocks and she saw no exit. She considered leaping down the chasm, although she would have had little or no chance of escaping with her life. All of a sudden, around 180 metres in front of her, she saw a young lady dressed all in white. The young lady beckoned to Miss Smith, and she followed and immediately found an exit which she was puzzled as to why she had not seen for herself. She now found herself on the other side of the force with the mysterious white lady, who she now thought to look a lot like her own sister. The apparition guided Miss Smith safely to a path which led to the base of the force, at which point the white lady vanished. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode. You can follow How Haunted on Twitter at, at HowHauntedPod or over on Instagram at HowHauntedPod 
where you will see photos galore relating to our ghost trail of Cumbria. If you want to get in touch, you can do so by visiting the website at www.how-haunted.com or you can email me directly at rob at how-haunted.com. Feedback, vocation suggestions and your own experiences are all more than welcome. Feel free to ask me any questions you like, and I'll answer them all on a dedicated Q&A episode. This episode is coming soon. If you'd like to support the show and get early access to episodes, you can join the Patreon for less than the price of a pint. You'll also get exclusive episodes where you'll join me on an actual paranormal investigation, and you'll hear the audio as it happened. There's seven episodes of this nature waiting for you right now. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash howhauntedpod to find out more. If you aren't a fan of Patreon or perhaps would prefer to make a one-off donation to the podcast, why not donate £2 to buy me a coffee? You can do so by going to buymeacoffee.com forward slash howhauntedpod. All of the information on how you can support How Haunted is in the podcast description and over on the website. If you've enjoyed this episode, if enjoys the right word, then please subscribe and review the podcast on your podcast provider of choice. It really does help other people to find How Haunted. Next time out we continue our journey through Haunted Cumbria, and we look at 10 more locations, which include the largest freshwater lake in England, which is home to a number of supernatural beings, including one which is said to have the body of a hedgehog, the tail of a squirrel, and the wings of a bee. We'll visit a Roman fort, which may still appear to be the home of a spectral Roman army. And you'll hear all about the broken-hearted white lady who roams a 12th century abbey searching for her true love. But what else lies in store for us next time out? Let's find out together next week when we conclude our ghost trail of Cumbria. Thank you so much for accompanying me for our paranormal adventures once again. Stay safe and join me next time when we will once again ask the question... How haunted.